So just jumping into Romans, we are in the part of the book of Romans where Paul is really teaching us the central message of Christianity. This is what followers of Jesus have believed about Christianity throughout history, and he's teaching it to the Roman church. The Roman church at this period of time is not like the Roman Catholic church. This is way before that. This is like eight home groups that are meeting in Rome of about 40 to 60 people in each home group. And we learned that those home groups had been fighting among each other. Could you imagine a church where people would fight among each other? It happened, and those insults made it all the way to Paul in Corinth. And so we wrote him a letter. And he says, guys, this is what we believe. The heart of the church is to be harmonious, to be united, to be connected. This is our central message. It's amazing. This week I was thinking about the central message of Christianity, and it's literally God's love letter to the world. And I was listening to a podcast. Anybody listen to podcasts? I was listening to a podcast from a guy in our church, and he was interviewing the guys that have done the He Gets Us commercials. Have you seen that? It's unbelievable. It was in the Super Bowl. And, and they're not like a denomination. They are literally a group of people, and they're asking this question. How could the greatest love story in the world be known as a hate group? That's their issue. That's why they're doing He Gets Us, because they're going, that's not the message of Christianity. And so Paul is saying, guys, hey, this is what we believe. This is the center of it. And so we've been walking through why God did what we did, why God did what he did. So we said this, that, that God's plan for the world is that he would redeem the whole world by sending Jesus, and out of Jesus' love for the world, he died on the cross for humanity so that we could all be free from sin and death. That's God's plan. That's where we're at. And today as we walk in, we talked about how God brought peace through the cross last week. And we ended on this verse in Romans 5.11. It says, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And last week we talked about peace and we said this, that peace is something that everybody here would go, I could use more of that. And we said that most people go about finding peace the wrong way. That the way we try and find peace, I think, in America is we try to um, go on vacations, escape, and run. And the problem is, is when we come home, the problems are still there. Have you noticed that? Come back and like, still here. We said that the ultimate plan, the ultimate way that you find peace is peace, uh, peace is found in a person, Jesus. That you can go on vacation and need another vacation because ultimately our souls are weary. And Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Paul says, we should rejoice as followers of Jesus because we found peace in our soul. The Hebrews called it shalom. Shalom is this understanding, it's, it's their word for peace. And it means this, that in my soul, I feel like I'm in right relationship with God, right relationship with my neighbor, and right relationship with his creation. That when we have that, we feel in peace. Now, if you're like me, it seems like most of the time there's rumbles and wrestling with that. It just never is perfect. 
And so there's this ache in our soul that we're searching. But Paul says rejoice because we found peace through Jesus Christ. So then now as he moves into 5 verse 12, Paul takes a very um, calculated approach about answering a central question of Christianity. And this message is going to be a how message, right? Do we have any people that you have to know how it works, right? You got you to gotta know, like, you'll buy something, and the first thing you want to do is take it apart. Who, who's that person? Okay, who's married to that person? You're like, just don't break it. Don't fiddle with it, right? Like, there are how people. I, I like to DIY. I like to try and do things myself, mostly because I'm cheap is the reason why. I just don't want to pay for someone else to do it. And so my dad, he, he worked in automotive his whole life. And so I try to do all my car repairs with my dad because it just goes so much better when he's there, right? When it's me, it's alone. So we were doing a brake job about a month ago, and we're putting brakes together. And how many know when it comes to how to on your own brakes, you want to get that right the first time. Because it doesn't stop, right? Like if, and so we're putting together the brakes, we're doing it. And for him, he's just done like 100 brakes. I'm like, Dad, let's do this right, you know? And so we get to this point where the brakes are on, and there's this piece, and he says to me, we don't need that. I'm like, it was on before. I mean, I, I know you, you've done this a lot, but, like, is it going to stop? And it was this part, and he, he told me, I had to ask him what the part was. It's called the anti-rattle clip. But he looks at me, he goes, we don't need that, because it was already rattling before it was on. He's like, it's loose, just take it off. I'm like, really? But he knows how the brakes work, so he's like, trust me, it'll work. And by the way, it does work. My car stops every time. <laughs> and I don't hear any rattles. And so he was right. I was wrong, but there was this missing part. And this is what I think. When it comes to followers of Jesus, there is this question that I think we all ask. How could someone who died 2,000 years ago make any impact or difference in my life today? And how can I have hope that in the future I will rise again with Jesus? That's a great question, right? Paul is going to give us the how of how that happens. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through just a little bit of theology of this is what Paul believed, how Jesus dying 2,000 years ago makes a difference right now in 2023 in your life. Are you ready? Verse 12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned, okay? This is how it starts. Now, people get hung up in the word, on the word sin. I think mostly because angry preacher, preachers in the 80s really hammered people on it. The word sin just simply means missing the mark, right? It's a, it's a, it's a marksman term. It means you shot an arrow, and it didn't hit the bullseye. That's all it means. That's all it means. And basically what Paul is saying is this, is because of Adam, going like, who's Adam? You guys remember who Adam is? He's the first man in the Garden of Eden. Moses wrote about the garden, and he wrote about the garden to give us our origin story. This is what God was doing in the world long before any of us ever existed. And the story of Adam and Eve is the story that God created man, Adam, 
realized it wasn't good that he was alone, so said, hey, let's give him a wife. Adam met Eve naked. How cool is that, right? You know, and he's like, he literally saw her and broke into song, which he's like, what? You know, because God was looking around like, who could Adam be married to? Not the elephant, not the tiger. What do you think about Eve? Boom, bone of my bone, flesh of my bone. I mean, he just starts singing, right? And so they are living in paradise with God, with shalom, in right relationship with God, right relationship with his spouse, right relationship with creation. The scriptures say that Adam is ruling and reigning over all of the animals and all of the land. This is what's happening. And then God says this, this paradise you have, you can have everything except for this one tree, right? You know this. You learned this Sunday school or something, right? This one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, that one tree, that's mine. You can't have it. And you know the story. Eve comes. She bites the fruit. She gives Adam to bite the fruit. And they sin. They miss the mark, right? They, 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 um... They, they, they rebel against God and his plan. And ultimately, this happens in Genesis chapter 3. It creates massive fallout. And most people think the story of the fall is chapter 3, but it's actually from Genesis chapter 3 to 11. That is the story of the fall. And in the fall, what you see is this, is that sin suddenly creates separation between Adam and his wife. Suddenly they look at each other and realize, hey, we're naked, and there's shame that they're feeling for the first time. And so they get fig leaves, and they cover up, and they hide from God, and suddenly they're not in right relationship with God. Suddenly they're not in right relationship with the world. And then God says this, this ground that has been so easy to till and toil, like work from, now there will be toil and fight and labor and work. There'll be pain and childbirth. And God said this, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. So Paul is saying this, that all of us are in Adam. That this one man and his story with Eve, his wife, is our story. And Paul is saying this, that Adam is our representative. He's our, let me try that word again representative. He's our representative. Now, what's interesting is this one sin created this chain reaction. And it created a chain reaction throughout all of history. And the three things it did is one man brought sin into the world, death entered the world because of sin, and it spread to all of the human beings. And you see, like, this spread not just to Adam and Eve, it spread to their children. Suddenly, Cain murdered his brother. And by the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, there's an entire city of people that are defying God, building their own tower in defiance to him. So it's this whole city focused in on a life without God. And so ultimately, Paul is saying this, we are all in Adam. He is the representative of the whole world. Now, here's the thing. This is how I think about it. Americans do not like two things about this story. We, we don't like a representative because we want our own turn in the garden. We just think this. Like, in our gut, we're like, I think I could do better than Adam. 
I want my turn. And we're never happy with a representative. I mean, think about it. Three, uh, 332 million Americans. Every four years, we have an election. I don't care which side of the candidate it's on, but aren't there times where you look at our two options and go 332 million Americans? These are really our picks? These are our options? I don't care which side it is. I'm looking at both sides going, this is the best America can do? Every time I think that. Both sides. I'm like, really? These are our options. I think this America, Adam, God, you picked Adam as the first man. He's our representative for all of humanity. The second thing is this, is, is we didn't get to pick Adam. We're like, I'm an American. I didn't even vote for Adam. I would have voted for Mother Teresa. She would have for sure have made it, right? Like, I know I wouldn't have, but Mother Teresa, right? You know, I know Billy Grant, somebody else, but not Adam. Paul's story is this, is that just like Adam had his turn in the garden, every one of us are like Adam. He's our representative. And we think somehow if I was there, I would have done better. And the scripture and what Paul says is this, is if you were there, you wouldn't have done better. And we've all had a chance and we haven't done better. So step one, remember this is a how-to? How-to. How did one guy change the whole world? Step one is one guy created the whole problem and his name's Adam. So in Adam, we all sinned. Step one. Verse 15, it says, but there is this great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. How-to message. Step two, in Jesus, we are all freed by grace, through one giant act of grace. So in one man, we all sinned. In another man, we've all been forgiven. Two men stand before God on judgment day, Adam and Jesus. And the theology behind this is we all cling to one of them. And we are all judged by which one we cling to. That's the story of the scriptures. So how does one giant act of grace change our life? What's fun is when you look at chapter, or, uh, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 20, you're going to see Paul using this phrase in the NLT, wonderful grace, abounding grace. And this word grace that he's using is this word perizo. And Parizo is literally like saying infinity grace. Like Paul's like saying, this one reaction of grace is like infinity grace. So in Adam, his sin created a chain reaction that was felt throughout all history. In Jesus, he offered a forgiveness which created an infinity grace that created a chain reaction throughout history. Ultimately, 
grace, this kind of super grace, this abounding grace. In verse 17, he, he uses this word grace again. He says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. He changes the word parizo to like parizomai, which is a different tense. And he's literally like saying this infinity grace. And then he comes in here, he goes, no, this super more grace. And then in verse 20, he goes one more time about God's wonderful grace. And he uses this word hupo parizo, which literally means super grace. So I think of Paul talking about, like, how much grace did Jesus offer this world? It's like two kids arguing in kindergarten. How much did your parents love you? Infinity. Well, my parents love me infinity plus one. Have you ever had that argument, right? right? And he's literally like, how much grace did Jesus offer you? He offered you infinity grace. No, no, he offered you super more infinity grace. Like, that's what he's trying to explain to this world. And I just think this, if the church grabs this, suddenly Jesus is the greatest love letter to the world. I think the biggest failure of the church for the last 20 years is that we just tried to offer a little bit of grace because we're just not sure what you're going to do with it. And suddenly we become judgmental, hypocritical Christians instead of people of grace. Christianity was never designed to be a religion that you worked your way to God. It was always designed to be an act of grace from Jesus that transforms us. So this one act of grace on the cross through Jesus created a chain reaction. How? One, Jesus was born of a virgin. Why is that important? Well, Adam, the first man. God created Jesus the second man, not born into Adam's line, born into a new line. Two, Jesus never sinned. He lived righteous in this world, fulfilling the law that God asked us to fulfill and did the thing that nobody on this earth has ever done. And three, because of his love for us, he exchanged his life for the whole world on the cross and died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin and credit us this new grace, this righteousness. So then Paul begins to talk about this rule, this, this rule. He says this in verse 17. He says, he says um, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. I love the word triumph. I circled the word triumph. Triumph sometimes is interpreted as reign. So literally like he's saying we are, we are to reign. It's like he's saying we are going back to the garden and now we are Adam and we get to rule over creation with God again. It's like he's restoring us to our proper place. And Paul is making this parallel between Sin and grace. And he's helping us understand that sin and grace are not equal. They're not on the same playing field. Grace triumphs over sin. It triumphs over it. It reigns over it. It rules over it. Okay, now I'm a little bit of a nerd. 
and I'm with a family of nerds, and so we like certain fantasy movies, like Lord of the Rings. How nerdy are we with Lord of the Rings? We watch it every Christmas season. All of the movies, extended version, our family watches it, except for my daughter, Izzy, who's not a nerd. Okay? We watch it. J.R. Tolkien, how many have seen Lord of the Rings? Come on, you had to at least seen like even 30 minutes. You're like, it was too long. The whole thing, J.R. Tolkien wrote that whole fantasy novel to help us understand one thing, that evil is self-defeating. Evil is self, that, that's the whole thing. If you watch the whole movie, there's actually no hero of the movie. What happens is literally the evil causes the ring to fall back into the fires of Mordor because of Gollum. It was never a hero. The whole point of the movie is that evil is always self-defeating. And one of the mistakes that Christians makes is we really start worrying about evil. We start worrying about, like, I got to control it. I got to hold it accountable. Got to deal with it. And really what Paul is saying is this, is you don't have to worry about evil at all. It will defeat itself. It eats itself. It kills itself. It turns itself in on each other. Grace abounds. Grace is exponential. Grace multiplies. So there's a major difference between evil and grace. Evil turns in on itself and is defeating. Grace is exponential. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to build. Grace rules and reigns over death. Verse 20, it says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. So literally, it's like contrasting the two things. The more people do bad things, the more grace looks amazing. It says, so just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful, this is where he uses the word super grace, wonderful super grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace reigns and rule. Uh, sin is ultimately limited and rooted in the past, and grace is unlimited and rooted in the future. So as we close today, I have three thoughts for you. First is this, is grace has a face, and it's Jesus. Grace has a face, and it's Jesus. I think people haven't experienced grace when they haven't met Jesus. There is something so powerful when you have that moment where you go, God, I cannot do this on my own. I have tried, and it has not gone well, and I am going to choose your life. I'm moving from Adam to Jesus. I'm experiencing what Martin Luther, the great reformer, says is I'm experiencing this great exchange where I trade my broken life for Jesus' perfect life. That's why one man's death 2,000 years ago can create a chain reaction that is still growing in this world. Three things about grace. One, grace is exponentially greater than sin. I think of it in terms of power and accountability. 
And one of the things we never think about is this, is grace has an incredible amount of accountability. So when you think about the law, okay, so the two things that most religions will do is religions will set up the law. These are all the things you need to do to earn your way to God. And the thing about the law is the only way it can hold you accountable is to punish you, right? Like that's, that's how the law works. You break the law, you speed, you get a ticket, right? And the reason why I don't speed is I fear tickets. Isn't that crazy? Like, I mean, that's, that's all the law can do is hold you accountable. Grace holds you accountable a different way. And grace's accountability is way more powerful. I was trying to think about how to explain it, and the only way I could do it is to show you a movie clip. Okay? One of my favorite movies of all time, probably my favorite movie of all time, is Les Mis. Okay? Now, I love the musical of Les Mis, but the Les Mis that I love is the 1996 Les Mis with Liam Neeson. Because everything with Liam Neeson is better, right? Okay? And the reason why I love it, it's not a musical, but it tells the story of grace and law. And just to set you up, there's a criminal, and his name is Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean was a child, and he was starving, and he became a criminal because he stole some bread. And the author of the book writes this story to show this, that we are all broken. At some point, we've done the most minuscule, small thing. I mean, just think about the injustice. He steals one loaf of bread because he was a starving boy. The law catches him and arrests him, and he's sent to a work camp to work the rest of his life for stealing a loaf of bread. He gets out of prison. He's now a grown man. He's on the streets, and he's trying not to steal, but he's starving, and there's no grace. There's no help. One night, a priest comes and finds him on the street starving and invites him in. The priest serves him a meal, gives him food, blesses this man. The priest goes to bed. Jean Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night, and how does Jean Valjean reward the priest? He steals his silver. Some of you are fans. You're with me, right? He steals his silver and he leaves. And that's where this movie clip picks up. It's three minutes. Here we go.
so we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. it tonight, who's watching it tonight, with this one act of grace, I've bought you. I'm giving you back to God. I've ransomed your life. With this one act of grace, you're no longer your own man. The story of Jesus is that he died in your place. He bought you. You live as someone of grace. And the whole rest of the movie, he understands that there's this grace he has to offer to everyone around because of this one act, this one moment. And I believe this, that one act, that one moment of grace changes you. And the second thing I wrote down is this, is grace spreads person to person to person. It's spread from the priest to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean spreads his grace to Cosette, if you know the story. He saves this little girl. And I just wonder this. Have you experienced that one act of grace? Have you met Jesus face to face and had that moment where he said, I've paid your price? Have you experienced that one act of grace? And could that one act of grace that transformed you transform every part of your life? The third thing I wrote down is this, is grace pulls us into eternal life. It pulls us into the future 
of where he's calling us. When, when, he, when uh, Paul ends in verse 21, he says, resulting in eternal life. And that word resulting is literally like it is, it is pulling us in to this new life with Christ. Now, one of the things I love is I love water skiing, right? And so, and I've taught hundreds and hundreds of people how to water ski. Anybody ever tried to do it? Okay, when you first do it, it's hard, right? Like you grab a hold of the rope and people will try and fight the boat. Now, my ski boat has 285 horsepower engine. That's a lot of grace power, okay? If a human being tries to fight against that boat, they're going to lose every time. But when you learn how to work with the boat, getting up on skis, pulling behind it can become effortless. When we learn how to walk in grace, it's literally like going on a ski ride with God. 285 horsepower engine pulling you through life into eternal life because of the grace of God. So how does it happen? People of grace pass grace person to person. So I'm giving everybody an assignment, okay? Probably two assignments. One, if you've never asked for Jesus' grace, today's the day to ask for it. If you've experienced Jesus' grace, the question becomes, who are you going to offer grace to this week? Because grace has a ripple effect. And if you want to see the power of grace, forgive someone. Set them free. Tell your spouse, that thing I've been holding against you for years, I'm letting it go. Tell your kids, I have no grudge against you. Let someone know they are loved no matter what they do. It is powerful. It is foreign from this world. Before Jesus, everything was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's how the world still lives. And just think about it. If we live like that, our whole family is going to be walking around with one eye. Right? Like, I mean, you took my eye. I'm taking yours. How, you feel better? No. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, forgive with grace upon grace upon grace. We live in a culture right now that is full of culture wars, worlds being polarized. You know what our secret weapon is? Grace. It's infinity grace. It, train, it changes people's life. So today I invite you to stand as we close in prayer. I think the band's coming. As a, in 2000, I moved to Tri-Cities and became a youth pastor. And when I got there, the month before I moved there, I heard that a 15-year-old girl's dad died in a motorcycle accident. And I had never met her, but I had heard about this. And I remember meeting her, and it was probably two weeks after she buried her father. And she was a bright wonderful girl. Her name's Brittany Hilker. And um, she loved the Lord, loved to sing. But when I met her, she was angry at God and mad at the world and rebellious. And for whatever reason, her hurt connected with my wife's hurt, my wife's past. And so she became great friends of our family but wanted nothing to do with God and was angry that her dad was dead. 
And I remember 15, 16, 17, 18, her life was just spinning out of control. And she moved away, went to Whitworth from college. And I remember feeling this feeling as a youth pastor, I lost her. A year into college, she calls my wife and she says, I've finally forgiven God for taking my dad. I realize I'm loved by God. I'm gonna go on the mission field. She moves to Haiti, which I was like, please, anywhere but Haiti. (laughs) She's this beautiful blonde haired girl. I'm like, what is gonna happen to you in Haiti? She moves there by herself. She's there, do you remember that huge earthquake in Haiti? She was there, she called us 30 minutes after the quake and said, I'm okay. And we were just like, phew. She's 22 and she adopts a little girl from in Haiti that was in her orphanage. She's rescuing infants from certain death. She's serving on this field and now the state will not let her bring her adopted daughter home. She stays in Haiti for 15 years, gets married to a guy, takes a new name, Pierre, and has a beautiful family now living back in Tri-Cities, loving the Lord. I think I have a picture of her. But I look at her and I just think, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And I just say to you today, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We have stories that are messy. We have pain. We have hurt. Take it to the cross. Allow the grace to transform your family. Let his hope transform you. Jesus, today, we are people of grace and people in need of so much grace.